this session is changed. The program has changed a little bit, but it's an introduction to the capability approach. Um, and in a sense, it's a chance for you to turn off what you've been doing and in a sense, enjoy something completely different, um, which might make a bit more sense or a bit less sense presented now rather than at the beginning. And our hope is that it will help you to reflect on the exercises that you've already done. And because you already have some experience with measurement, you will see that not all multidimensional poverty measures reflect capabilities, much less functionings. Um, and we'll also see what could be the value and what changes are necessary for measures to reflect this approach. So um, I will give an overview of SEN's capability approach. Um, I'm happy to take questions or to discuss Martha Nussbaum's approach, um, including her 2011 book, Creating Capabilities. But for our purposes, um, I'll focus on SEN's approach and then also on complementary initiatives. Um, and so, in a sense, we'll be talking about some of the language of human development, of human security, human rights, um, and, and trying to make conceptual linkages. And our overriding reason for doing this is, in a sense, to think, to start to think more precisely about how measures are used to evaluate human well-being. And and as you probably all know from Milton Friedman, econ economics can be used to predict, it can be used to describe, it can be used to evaluate. There are different purposes and different methodologies of, of economics which are appropriate for these different tasks that we are engaged in. But the evaluative task is, in a sense, a normative task. And so coming back to reflecting again and again on the different ways that this can be done is useful, particularly because at this time, in the history, um, as Tony Atkinson observes, the underlying normative or moral um, foundations of economics are taught less rigorously and less, in a sense, consistently than other aspects, the, the more modeling, the more predictive or descriptive aspects. And because of that, the welfare basis of policy evaluation, as he observes, is often overlooked. We evaluate policies in many different ways, but we don't really clarify their normative foundations. So, as I mentioned, I'll focus on the work of Amartya Sen. So first, a quick overview. His first paper on the capability approach was in 1979, entitled Equality of What? Um, and it was a signal paper because at that time, recall his 1976 paper, we've been talking about a lot, poverty and ordinal approach to measurement. Um, so these were the times when he was working on poverty measurement as well as on social choice and welfare issues. Um, but simultaneous to, and in a sense, um, part of the reason and the motivation for the capability approach was the emergence of the basic needs approach. Um, there are many different authors, including Francis Stewart, Norm Hicks, Paul Streeton, um, and authors in different regions who are trying to argue that we should focus on a basic set of needs that people have, focus our poverty reduction pro uh, processes on these needs, and then focus on growth for the entire population, but first try to have everyone's basic needs met before we move on. And the basic needs approach, as it was then called, um, came out of a more practical orientation 
um, and did involve some <coughs> measurement discussions, some demand supply um, modeling, but it did not have a clear philosophical foundation. And so one of the motivations for the capability approach was to clarify and perhaps provide not a, a proper foundational uh, support, but, but some greater clarity on, on the issues. Um, in the 1980s, so recall the approach was started in 1979, so the 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher, economics was also moving in a different direction. Um, and so the writings on the capability approach by the end of the 80s were very much focused on the objective of economic growth should be aimed not necessarily at, at simply the growth of income, but at the ultimate aims or ends of human life, which were framed in the capability approach in terms of capability. Um, and so very much the development of the capability approach interacted with the language and the changes of the Washington Consensus as it was developing. And then from the 1990s to the present, there have been, as many of you know, annual human development reports published by the UNDP, which take different themes and explore um, at a policy level, uh, some of the different analysis that can come out if you try um, to focus on human beings as the objective of economic activities. Um, the key texts by Amartya Sen, which in a sense frame this period and provide the basis of the, of the capability approach, which also itself evolved during the time, are listed here. In 1984, there is a very brief book, very, very short and fantastic. So if you haven't read it, I, I would recommend it, um, on commodities and capabilities, which is a, a lucid um, and uh, simple presentation of the approach as it was at that time. At that time, Sen was also becoming president of the American Economic Association. And so in 1984, also published um, had many different articles in the proceedings published on capabilities and on poverty-related topics. In 1992, he collected a lot of the work done to that time in a monograph um, called Inequality Reexamined, which does give a more systematic presentation of the capability approach in the context of studies of inequality and poverty and development. Um, and the basis of that book was to observe that any theory of equality or of inequality, any theory of justice, requires equality in some space. And his argument was that equality should be measured in the space of capabilities. Um, and all of the implications then came from that very simple observation together with the diversity of human beings. In 1993, um, he published, uh, co-authored with Martha, or co-edited with Martha Nussbaum, a volume on the quality of life, which was the output of a research project at the World Institute for Development Economics Research, WIDER, which tried to bring philosophers to engage in some of the issues. And Sen's article in that book, Poverty and Capability, is again a very lucid and simple presentation, which is a, a good first read. Um, in 1999, after receiving the Nobel, he again synthesized a lot of his work in a book called Development is Freedom, and a decade later um, in the idea of justice. And the idea of justice very much goes beyond the capability approach to talk also about the principles of justice and about processes 
Um, and I will, I'll touch very lightly on those, but I'm happy to discuss them in greater depth. Um, clearly, these were, the foundational texts were by Sen and from 1989 from Martha Nussbaum. But by now, there are a large number of authors, including those working in philosophical and foundational issues, as well as in more applied work. And so the secondary literature is large. So I will simply present um, Sen's texts here. But again, I'm, I'm very happy to, to discuss or go through um, some of the others. I think it's useful um, to also think of the person, um, because our work interacts with our interests, our capabilities, and in a sense, the problems that we encounter. Um, he was born in Dhaka in Bangladesh and spent the childhood in there as well as in Burma, as well as in Shantiniketan in India, where he did primary school. Um, as his autobiography in the Nobel recounts, there were some signal experiences which have had a clear impact on subsequent work, including the Bengal famine, and also the killing of a Muslim laborer at, during partition um, in 1947. He studied at Kolkata and at Cambridge, Trinity College, Cambridge, then taught at the Delhi School at London School of Economics at Oxford, where he was a Drummond professor, um, returning to Trinity College, Cambridge as its master after he received the Nobel and now teaches at Harvard. So although as you will be able to do the sums. Um, he's not below the normal retirement age. He is a full-time active professor. Um, and I hope some of us will be at that age. Um, the capability approach, as I said, is a moral or an eva uh, evaluative, a normative framework. So it's not simply focused on describing, um, and it's not simply focused on trying to predict um, the impact, but it's on evaluation. And the central idea is that social arrangements and what these are will depend on what we are looking at at the moment, but social arrangements should be primarily evaluated according to the extent of freedom that people have to promote or to achieve functionings they value. Now many people read things like that and go blank. Um, the communications director at OFI, uh, Patty Coulter, um, suggested that his men's reading group read Amartya Sen's work, and he almost got kicked out of his reading group as a result. So people do not necessarily find this language immediately intuitive. So really the purpose of today is to try to go through and ask what do these words mean, unpack them, and then relate them to the measurement work that we're doing already. What are beings and doings? It's not what you get up and have your morning coffee discussing. So this is a definition from inequality re-examined of capability, where he says that it is the various combinations of functionings, beings and doings, that the person can achieve. It is thus a set of vectors of functionings, reflecting the person's freedom to lead one type of life or another, to choose from possible livings. Um, it's useful to go back to that definition, to think it through a vector of functionings, um, a set of vectors of functionings, and, and, and take it apart. The analogy, which is the very simplest, is a budget set. If we had 10 pounds in our pocket, um, or 10 euros in our pocket, 
um, what could we do with it? There would be a number of different things that we very concretely could buy and do today. A phone card to phone one's beloved, a meal, um, transport back into the airport, um, perhaps going to a show or a movie. That's our budget set. It's the set of very concrete options we could do with our 10 euros. The capability set is a set of the vectors of functionings that we very concretely could do. The time is unspecified, the boundaries are unspecified, they become specified when we focus on a particular problem. But the intuition is very similar um, for those who think in terms of budget set, which I think most of us would be very familiar with. Um, in the idea of justice, describing the capability approach, Sen wrote, the focus here is on the freedom that a person actually has to do this or be that, things that he or she may value doing or being. So this contrasts it, and the contrast is stressed again and again by Sen with concepts of opportunity or freedom, which are notional. On paper, I might have the freedom from hunger. Um, there is no law against dying of hunger is the opening line of poverty and famine by Sen. But in fact, I might not be able to eat. So there are paper freedoms that you and I might have that in fact mean nothing. And Sen is interested in stressing the real freedoms, the freedom a person actually has to do this or be that. Um, so the, the vector of functionings are actually things that you could choose and enjoy. My observation, and I'll signal some of how this is different from others, how they present the capability approach, is that in Sen's writing, all formulations of capability have two parts, freedoms and functionings. Um, and one of his distinctive contributions has been to unite the two concepts. Um, although in a different way than Martha Nussbaum does. So the same words have different meanings for these two authors, um, if, you, if you want to be a bit particular about it. So I'll, I'll go through each of them one by one. So a functioning is a point in space. It's a something that a person may value and have reason to value doing or being. So what's that gibberish mean? It means being well-nourished. It means being able to visit your aunt. It means being able to eat ri rich sweets um, or um, attending uh, a summer school. So although the language is very abstract, it's intuitive. Um, I give examples from participatory work just to say that communities understand this. Um, a women's group in Lahore had received some literacy training and learned about nutrition and they found that carrots were as nutritious as apples, but carrots are less expensive. So that's a piece of knowledge, it's a functioning. Um, it's something that they learned, something that was added to their learning that they had not previously known. Or in Bhutan, um, a community at the end of a session speaking about poverty, then spoke about the social connectedness of the community um, as children were playing um, a game and saying that that is, is really what um, gives us our identity and gives us our strength. So people, when they speak about their lives, will often list different functionings related to their health, their education, their work, their relationships, the dimensions that we spoke about earlier. Um, the key features is that they have to be intrinsically valuable to the person. Um, so for example, I could value learning um, the way to use a particular stata command because I have to do it. 
But I could value learning poetry because it's just somehow enriching. It's just beautiful to know some lines of poetry, to be able to reflect on them, to be able to be carried wherever the images take you. Um, and so there are some kind of learning which are of intrinsic value, and there's some that might only be instrumental and for the sake of something else. Um, but insofar as a functioning is valuable to the person, has intrinsic value, um, then it is a functioning. But what does this value and have reason to value? What's that phrase mean? I could value something, so I, I'll, I'll say it this way. My value set includes um, coming to learn, um, walking around Delft, and torturing small children. Now, there's a set of things that I have reason to value, and those include broccoli, summer school, and walking around Delft. But I don't value broccoli. Detested the stuff, don't want to eat it. Um, so the functioning is the intersection of these two sets. It's what I value and have reason to value. Um, who decides which of my pre preferences are reasonable? That's a question Sen does not answer. It's part of his framework is to ask, to scrutinize one's own reasons, to allow our preferences to change, to allow for public debate to challenge our preferences and our, uh, our values. Um, but he doesn't specify how and who has the authority to s decide what we have reason to value. He only raises that because it is evidently the case that some of us value things we don't have reason to value, that on further reflection, if we scrutinize our, our preferences or our values, we might shift them. Um, the space that we are focusing on is doings and beings. In a sense, the, the texture is the person's life. What a person is, is able to do actively and how they are able to be, and that could include a feature like I mentioned before, being serene, enjoying serenity or tranquility. That's a being, um, or being well-nourished. That's a being, not a doing and it can include activities. So in a sense, this is the identification of space that we're working on. It's the space of human lives, and it will become clearer as we contrast it with other spaces. So let's take the example of a bicycle. We have a big red bicycle. Um, and a bicycle is a resource, okay? It could be um, any resource that we have, but it is, it's a resource and we could each have a bicycle. Um, it's something you can measure. We know most of our indicators reflect resources uh, rather than functionings. Um, the hope is that a bicycle will give us the capability to move around, right? So if I, I measure bicycle, what's in my mind is that it, the bicycle is a proxy for her mobility, perhaps. And the functioning is that we would indeed ride around. Um, and then if we're interested in utility, riding around would make us happy, right? So that is, these are different focal spaces. Resources is one space. Capabilities and functionings are the same space. Capabilities is a, a set of vectors of functionings. This is one particular functioning, so a point in the space. And utility is a, a different space Altogether, it's the space of our mental or psychic utility. Now, when we focus and try to evaluate social arrangements, which is the task of the capability approach, Sen argues we should not 
focus and limit ourselves to resources. So why not? I have a bicycle, but I have no legs. Or I have no sense of balance. Or I'm terrified of traffic. So I have a bicycle, but it doesn't give me the capability to move around. I don't move around and I'm not happy. Unless I'm happy simply by owning a bicycle and bragging to my friends I own a bicycle. But it's, it's, it's not necessary that having this resource produces this capability or this functioning. And it's also necessary, I'm, I could be happy without my bicycle. Um, or I could be happy, although I have a bicycle, it's not the bicycle which makes me happy. To give the other example, and this is the one Sen uses most of all, it's food. So each of us have the same kilo of rice to eat, but one person is pregnant, one person is very old, one person is very young, and one person is a day laborer. And so what is our, and one person has very high metabolism. So what is our nutritional status from having the same rice? Well, the pregnant person, sorry, <laughs> our pregnant man, <laughs> the pregnant person might have less. The old person might have way too much. The old, or the young person, way too much. The, and, and the old as well. The day laborer might not have enough calories, and the person with a high metabolism also might need more. So the same amount of a commodity, a resource, and this could be income, this could be food, this could be any other resource, might go along with different levels of capability and different levels of functionings. And Sen calls this the ability of different people to convert resources into functionings. So a disabled person might require more resources to convert um, mobility, to, to simply get around, because they require a wheelchair or they require assistance to move around. And then utility is, is a slightly problematic, um, and we'll go into it a bit later. But I could be happy for a number of different reasons that may or may not reflect my material state. I could be happy, and Sen is quite troubled by the, the poor devout widow who is um, happy, um, although she does not have many material circumstances, because she has accustomed herself to being content or grateful for small mercies. This is his language. Um, so she's happy, but if we took that utility and we observed her happiness, and we didn't realize that she actually was also destitute, then we might be content and not feel that we, we should look at any of her functionings because utility, in a sense, was sufficient. Um, and so there is a problem that he observes with only looking at the psychic states of people and using them as a proxy for their well-being more fully. So these, I hope that now you're starting to see that there are different spaces. There are different spaces in which we can and do measure and we'll be looking at the measures that we've created to see which you have used or blended. Um, and that the assumptions that we make about how achievements in one space translate into achievements in another space um, are refracted through a set of assumptions about people's ability to convert resources into capabilities or capabilities into utility, or assumptions about how sufficient utility is as a measure of achievements in other spaces. So just a quick pop quiz. Which of these are indicators of functionings directly? 
is an asset index? Is it a resource? Is it a functioning? Or is it a utility? OK. How about access to schooling? It could be. So there are some of these that are difficult. Access to schooling could be. Many of the variables that we have say nothing about the quality of schooling if I'm discriminated, um, if uh, I can actually afford to go. It doesn't give me information about people's real ability to attend school. Some do. And so we have to look at the indicator to figure out, is it a, a capability or is it a resource that I may or may not actually have access to? Body mass index, which is your meters per kilogram squared? Functioning. Um, income, self-reported health, everything. <laughs> Again, that is difficult. Um, self-reported health is how satisfied are you with your health overall. So the question is, in a sense, asking about satisfaction. So it's asking in the space of psychic utility. It is used, Angus Deaton, for example, use it to proxy achievements in health space. And he does this by demonstrating um, a strong relationship between self-reported health in America and objective functionings. But it's not always the case. Sen, in his 2002 BMJ article, gives the example of people in widows in Kerala, uh, a wealthy state in India which has low morbidity and long life expectancy and widows in Bihar, a poor state which has high morbidity and low life expectancy. And the people in Bihar said, yeah, they're quite satisfied with their health. And the people in Kerala said, no, it's terrible. But their life expectancies were longer and their morbidity was lower. And so you had the opposite relationship um, between self-reported health and objective functionings indicators. This is very, very commonly known in the case of fear of violence, where those with the least probability of being victims are the most afraid. Um, Carol Graham, in her recent book, um, Miserable Millionaires and Happy Peasants or something, also documents that the self-reported health of people in Kenya is equal to the self-reported health of Americans. So self-reported health particularly in contexts where their lower education or the frame of reference, again, exhibits adaptation, may not be an adequate objective proxy for health functionings. It has to be tested. How many times per week you consume an egg? Capability? Capability? Functioning? Functioning? Resource? Resource. It's a eggs per week. Eggs per week. It's like kilograms of rice per week. So the impact of an egg will depend if you're allergic to eggs, if you like eggs, if you are, for dietary reasons, opposed to eggs, um, and also on how much protein you need given your body. What? It's a resource. Yeah. Just like rice. Is that clear? No. <laughs> what could I do to make it clearer? <laughs> Well, keep going, because in a moment I'll ask you to identify your own indicators and what they were, and then we can, we can discuss this some more. So I said that capabilities are made up of two parts, free functionings and freedoms. F 
Freedoms are the doings and beings you value and have reason to value. The intersection of those two sets. Now let's turn to freedoms. Um, freedoms, this is quote is from development is freedom. I already mentioned is the real opportunity that we have to accomplish what we value. So it's not a paper freedom, but it's an actual freedom. Um, and Sen describes it many, many different ways and different times. Here's one quote, the good life is partly a life of genuine choice, not one in which the person is forced into a particular life, however rich it might be in other respects. Um, and we'll, we'll look at the different components of freedom. Um, so, First of all, let's focus on the opportunity freedom, which is the capability. Um, the distinction between opportunity freedom and process freedom is most clearly made in Sen's 2002 book, Rationality and Freedom, in the Arrow Lectures at the end of that book. Um, but there are a number of things to clarify. First of all, um, freedom has to be effective freedom. But the second is that freedom is not maximization of choices without regard to their value. This was um, enthusiastically debated by Jerry Cohen in Quality of Life, where he gives the example of bloppel, um, different kinds of washing powder, and Bernard Williams, sorry. Um, and that if you multiply the different kinds of washing powder that you have to choose between, it may not make your life more meaningful. In fact, as Sen writes, sometimes more choices can befuse, sorry, can confuse and befuddle and make one's life more wretched. Um, and so really what you want is you want the choices in your functioning set to be not only things that you value, but choices that you value. And so in a sense, we may have meta preferences about how many choices those are. Those will depend upon personality. Some people like a lot of variation. They like a lot of... Um, stimulation, and some people like to live quite a, a, a regular uh, life. And it will also depend on culture. So some people would like to come home and have the choices made for them by their family members, um, and others need to be in control of more of their choices themselves. A second misunderstanding is freedom as control. In Western political philosophy, there's been a lot of emphasis on control by a person as being constitutive of their freedom. Sen gives many examples where this is not the case. For example, um, there's a threat of malaria. The government chooses to spray, a spray ponds um, to kill the malaria mosquitoes. Your freedom might have gone up because now you have the freedom to live without the threat of malaria. But you were not personally in control of that decision. Hopefully it was made by a democratic process which you could have engaged um, had you wished to. But still, it was clearly a collective choice. Another example he gives is of a person um, who's a friend of yours, who's just got run over a car and is bleeding profusely, and is a Jehovah's Witness, which means they don't want blood transfusion. So you gather them up, and you take them to the hospital, and you say, please do anything for him, but don't give him a blood transfusion. So in a sense, you have been advancing his freedom although he's unconscious at the moment, um, because you have been helping his preferences, um, his functionings to be advanced. And so similarly, freedom doesn't need to be direct control. Um, it can either 
occur through public action or through action of others on behalf of somebody. This is slightly out of order. I thought this slide was before. But as I mentioned, for Sen, freedom has two parts, the opportunity or the capability um, uh, aspect and the process aspect, which is related to agency as well as to process freedoms and systemic freedoms. Um, so the opportunity aspect is your set, the vectors, the set of vectors of functionings you could achieve. And the process aspect is your ability to act on behalf of what matters. Um, this is clearly spelt out in 1985 um, in his Dewey lectures um, and well-being, agency, and freedom. And, and as I said, in, in the Arrow lectures as well. And it is differently um, configured for Martha Nussbaum, who does not have a concept of agency in her writing. So for Sen, what a person is free to do and achieve in pursuit of whatever goals or values he or she regards as important is their agency. Um, and an agent he describes also as somebody who acts and brings about change and whose achievements can be judged in terms of her own values and objectives, whether or not we assess them in terms of some other criteria as well. So what you will observe is that this is the opposite definition from principal agent. Right, where the principal is the active person. So here, the agent is, is the person who brings about change. Um, and again, what is distinctive, there are a number of things that are distinctive about Sen's concept of agency, which I've tried to outline in different places, which are on your reading list, um, is that the definition of agency itself contains some assessment of value. So a person is a, an agent insofar as what they pursue is something they value and have reason to value. Um, and so this constrains it. We might say, for example, that Osama bin Laden was a super empowered individual, but perhaps not an agent from this perspective if we debated and considered whether or not the objectives were ones that um, he had reason to value. And that, that's a debate, but it's a debate worth having for Sen before you identify someone as an agent. Whereas in, again, many of the definitions of empowerment which are active now, they're value neutral. They're simply saying if a person has power, whether it's power um, to do ill or power to do good, they are empowered. Um, and that, in a sense, is, is what the goal of empowerment is. So a lot more could be said about agency. It's not the focus of our work, and so I've skipped over it. We'll return briefly tomorrow um, when we talk about missing dimensions of poverty data. Um, but for now, I just wanted to stress that the capability approach in more recent um, articulations of it um, puts both agency and capability at the center. So here's a quote from Dresden Sen 2002, India Development and Participation, which describes their approach as a sense, essentially a people-centered approach which puts human agency rather than organizations such as markets or governments at the center of the stage. And the crucial role of social opportunities is to expand the realm of human agency and freedom. So freedom is, is your capability, uh, both as an end in itself and as a means of further expansion of freedom. Um, and this will be useful for what I'm about to go to. The word social 
they clarify in the expression social opportunity is a useful reminder not to view individuals and their opportunities in isolated terms. The options that a person has depend greatly on relations with others and on what the state and other institutions do. Um, so that's important to bear in mind when we talk about individualism in just a moment. So we began with the capability approach and then observed that capabilities have two parts, functionings and freedom, and have just very, very lightly introduced those terms. And there's a lot more in depth, um, both written about them and that we could get into if we wish. Um, I wanted to signal, however, that um, when Sen speaks of process freedoms, um, he includes not only individual freedoms, so expansions of agency, but also process freedoms, um, clarifying in the Arrow lectures that it's personal, it's systemic, it's political. Um, and regularly trying to invoke um, a more, in a sense, collective action by different groups, whether it's social movements, whether it's advocacy groups, whether it's NGOs, on issues of concern. Um, so if you look at down the titles of his various books, you will see that the end chapter is usually a chapter, in a sense, calling for a, a collective response um, to different kinds of tragedies. So here's a quote from the 1989 book um, on public action and, and hunger, um, which is expressing disappointment because persistent deprivation does not seem to engender the kind of shock and disquiet that might be reasonable to expect given the enormity of tragedy. And he says, the subject often generates either cynicism or complacent irresponsibility. Um, and he's not going to talk about irresponsibility, but he does want to address cynicism. Um, a lot of the more recent writings um, do give a lot of examples of political freedoms. So, for example, this is taken from Idea of Justice, where he gives a succession of examples of political debate that are non-Western um, and that exhibit a kind of democratic freedom from Athens, obviously, from the 6th century Buddhist councils in India, from the 3rd century Buddhist councils under Ashoka. In both cases, they needed to hear the perspectives of diverse citizens in order to reach a reasoned consensus. And um, I put up this quote from Prince Shotoko um, in the Japan Constitution of 17 Articles um, in the 7th century, um, where they specified that decisions on important matters should not be made by one person alone. They should be discussed with many. Nor let us be resentful when others differ from us, for all men, I presume not only men, um, have hearts, and each heart has its own leaning. Their right is our wrong, and our right is their wrong. Um, putting up these examples to, to explore the possibilities of public debate. And again, we may want to discuss this further, um, but many of the value judgments that Sen puts up as central to the capability approach, such as the selection of capabilities, of cutoffs, of relative weights, he argues should be made um, either by a political debate, a public debate, or should be, as I've said repeatedly on Friday, should be made explicit so that public debate um, can 
figure out if they can be improved. So that's just your very, very basic, simple, um, half an hour description of the capability approach. I wanted to signal also some of the important misunderstandings and my take um, on a response to them, just again to prevent the misunderstandings from being remade right here. First of all, many of the examples that Sen gives um, of capabilities relate to health and education. And for example, the Human Development Index, we will see later, has those as the two dimensions in addition to income upon which to focus. But clearly, the capability approach is much wider. Um, and recall the different dimensions that we looked at on Friday, the eight dimensions of the Sarkozy Commission, of which Sen was a co-chair, um, specify some, to some extent the breadth of possible capabilities that are relevant for the measurement of quality of life. So there's a lot of breadth. Um, what I would say at the same time is that um, the capability approach is deliberately incomplete. It is a framework and the motivation is for you to specify it. So Sen, uh, unlike perhaps other authors, has a great deal of respect for the people who will implement, who will specify and particularize the approach to a particular context and a particular set of problems and wants to encourage their agency, their value judgments and their discussion with other groups um, to make those value judgments rather than making them a priori in the framework. So the, the capability approach is very wide and deliberately incomplete, um, but at the same time as you fill it in, many of the degrees of freedom that you think you have are taken away from you when you see the political reality, when you see the data constraints, um, when you see uh, perhaps the specific questions that you need to answer technically, a monitoring question or simply the dimensions that are relevant, then um, the degrees of freedom that you have um, will, will be quite reduced and much more manageable. A second misunderstanding is about individualism. For the capability approach, an individual person's capability is ultimately the ethical basis. Um, and Sen does, as a feminist, want to know each person's capability. Because the capability of a family could be very good, but a woman or a child within the family could be quite neglected, or a man, um, for that matter. Um, and so Sen does specify, and Ingrid Robbins, um, a student of Sen's who is a political philosopher, has clarified that ultimately, ethically, the capability approach is individualistic in the same way that human rights ethically are individualistic. Um, it's not torturing a group. It's if any individual is tortured, if any individual um, has a particular human right that is violated, um, then there is a violation of human rights. Um, at the same time, it's not a methodological individualism. So many, including Francis Stewart and Savarine Denulin, um, wrote and argued that Sen was being individualistic in saying that only the individual mattered in overlooking social influences and overlooking the importance of collective action and groups. Um, and again, Ingrid Robbins wrote a very useful clarificatory um, article on this, which is in the 2008 volume edited with Flavio Komim and Mozaffer Kizilbash, um, 
where she looks at the different kinds of individualism and explains that while Sen is ethically individualistic, methodologically, as we have seen, he invokes the social. Um, the so that's why I paid attention to the social opportunities and his clarification of social, what social meant in the book with Drez. Um, and so giving a space for, for groups, for individuals to, to take action and to create capabilities. And this is also very evident in his discussion of public action, which for him in the, the clarification of the term in 1989 was not just action of the state, but included action of the citizens and of non-governmental actors. So um, Sen has clarified quite often that the capability approach, as I mentioned at the beginning, is evaluative. And he does that com contrasting it with descriptive and with um, predictive uh, methodologies and, and activities in economics. However, to some extent, we not only want to evaluate policies and to look at two policies and detect which has advanced capabilities more, more effectively, more actively, we also want to know how, to, how we should prospectively implement policies that will advance um, capabilities. And that does have a predictive element um, to it. And so um, I've tried to clarify that different groups are using the capability approach not only to evaluate, but also to um, try to create policy advice. Um, and that requires different kinds of rationality and bringing together different kinds of descriptive and predictive analysis in order to build a case for prospective action in the future. And the final um, misunderstanding to signal is that there are many multidimensional approaches to poverty or to well-being or to inequality which have nothing to do with the capability approach. So just the fact that you've done a multidimensional poverty measure doesn't mean that you've done anything related to the functionings or the capabilities of the people involved. And this depends very much on the space that you elect for the measure and how you justify um, the different indicators that you have selected. Um, but I, I wanted to signal it because um, there are many shortcomings. One of them is that it is very, very difficult to measure freedom. Um, I mentioned when I presented our method with James Foster that we've tried to relate our methodology to work of Patanayak and Zhu in social choice theory and to their concept of freedom. And that is, at one level, very easy to do. Um, but what is very difficult to do, as James Foster clarifies, um, is to identify counterfactual choices. So think again of a person's capability set. It's the set of vectors of functionings that they could choose, of which they will choose one in any given point in time. And what we can observe in our data sets is one. We can observe their achieved functionings. We cannot observe counterfactually what they could have chosen and didn't. It's very, very difficult to construct that empirically. And so far, no measures have tried to do so. Those which claim to be measuring capability are either using latent variable techniques or using subjective assessments, a person's assessment of how much opportunity freedom that they had. But they are not concretely measuring the counterfactual. Functionings and central to their definition is the issue of value. Um, 
uh, are they things people value and have reason to value? Are they intrinsically valued as ends in and of themselves, whether or not they are also valued as instrumental to other things? And you'll recall that Sen in Development as Freedom identified five freedoms which were both of intrinsic value and also instrumental, as in human capital, um, to other achievements we might be concerned about. So we are clearly interested in both the intrinsic and the instrumental, but many measures would not be comfortable and many descriptions of variable choice would not raise issues of intrinsic value. Again, it's not part of the culture of economics at this particular t point in time. It has been in the past. Um, and most of our indicators are resources, which we'll see when we go to the data sets. Um, and often it's difficult or simply we don't bother to make clear whether or not we are using it, a resource indicator as a proxy of a functioning and what would be the assumptions that we uh, require to make that, um, or whether we're simply using it as a resource indicator. Um, and finally, the process of public debate, of making value judgments, of whether it's of weights or of the selection of, of dimensions and indicators, is often, again, not specified. So just because somebody or some institution has created a multidimensional measure does not mean that you can say they have try to advance the capability approach or look at human functionings. So it's, it's really worth trying to, to figure out um, which and how empirical work can um, advance it. I wanted to signal, again, only to spark further discussion if you want it, um, that what I've presented is my understanding and my reading of Sen's work, and there are others. Um, Martha Nussbaum has a little book, came out earlier this year. You should read it. Um, it's basically her published version of the lectures she gave at the, this conference, Human Development and Capability Association Conference in India in 2008. Um, and sparked by those lectures, she wrote an introduction to the capability approach. She argues in that that capability approach has two primary uses. One is to create a theory of social justice, and that is the work that she has advanced in her own research and the other is to address issues of measurement and of social welfare, and that's the work that Sen has addressed. Um, as I said, I focused on Sen's writings in this presentation, and Nussbaum's are slightly different um, in a number of different ways. Ingrid Robbins, um, a fantastic political philosopher who again is teaching a uh, course on capability as part of another pre-conference training um, before the Delft HCCA meetings, um, has a very good article which introduces the capability approach in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But if you read it, you will notice there are a couple things that she says that are very much the opposite of what I've just said. In particular, she argues that functionings are value neutral, that being depressed is a functioning, being able to kill animals is a functioning, um, and one might think that torturing small children was perhaps a functioning in her understanding. And so she does not, she puts the selection of whether the functioning is valuable as a subsequent step, whereas I understand Sen to have it as integral to the definition itself. But she very usefully thinks, uh, clarifies in her uh, style that the capability approach makes two claims which can be independently assessed. The first is that the freedom to achieve well-being is of primary moral importance. Um, and the second, is that that freedom to achieve well-being 
is best understood in terms of people's capabilities. Um, and so her work has, has built on that. She also has other points of departure. She argues that we should think about basic capabilities, um, citing Sen's 1993 paper where he does mention basic capabilities. But Sen subsequently also wrote that he had earlier used the term basic capabilities, but he didn't any longer believe that it was adequate to set aside some as necessarily prior to others, and so would not use that distinction subsequently. So his own language has shifted over time. But anyway, these are fantastic people, very thoughtful people, and um, useful to read. There's also another book, um, I just thought now for something completely different, by Donna Thompson, uh, a Canadian, um, who wanted to understand how the capability approach applied to her life as a mother, as a wife, um, and to the lives of her family. And so she asked these questions, which are useful um, to us who study the capability approach, because if we don't understand it, in a sense, at that level, how can we understand it at a policy level? So she asked, what are the key functionings and capabilities that her family valued? And they sat together, and they came up with a list. And it is in the back of her book. Um, and it's the different functionings that were part of their happiness. So she was very much interested in Bhutan's work on gross national happiness and uh, read it with great interest. And then what level of achievements did they think would be sufficient? So each of the family members discussed what their cutoff would be for them, their own happiness or for their own well-being in the different functionings. And then they each rated themselves where they were in a subjective scale um, from one to five um, at different points in their life retrospectively. So it was a recall questionnaire for each of her family members retrospectively to scale themselves and their um, uh, achievements at different points in time. And so we might also ask you if you were doing this, um, if you had your set of functionings, if you had your cutoffs, if you thought of a year ago, we might ask, have these expanded because of the summer school? Has, the capa has your capability expanded um, in any way recently? So just to give you an idea, these are the, the members of her family, herself, her husband, her daughter, and her son. And those are the different functionings that they identified. Um, and this is one of the, the different graphics for one of the years um, in which they ranked how well they were functioning in each of them. So it's a very, very different book. Um, it's not an academic, not a philosophical book, but it's a very thoughtful book about ingraining this approach um, at a much more personal level before we go jump into the survey questions and the measurement that, we will, that we're focusing on here. So are there any questions about that approach in general? I'll then have a couple slides just on the links to measurement and then move on to discuss relationship with concept of human development, human security, human rights. So just a, a, a few reflections on measurement. Um, so I, I hope the one thing that I really want you to be clear on is this notion of space. Um, what is the space of resources? What is the space of capabilities and functionings? They're the same space. Uh, functioning is a point on the space, and a capability is a set of vectors or a set of points. Um, and utility. 
And so this is from 1992, Ascend's Inequality Reexamined. The capability approach, he argues there, is concerned primarily with identification of value objects and sees the evaluative space in terms of functionings and capabilities, which means that he sees that we should measure poverty and measure being, well-being in the space of capabilities and functionings. I already identified the problem of measuring capabilities, but now we have to look at measuring functionings at least. Um, but arguing this doesn't, in a sense, take any of these discussions that we've already been having about the selection of dimensions and indicators away. So he says the primary claim is that the value objects are functionings, but this claim never entails, neither entails that all types of capability are equally valuable, nor that indicators, nor indicates that any capability whatsoever, even if totally remote from the person's life, must have some value in assessing that person's well-being. The relative valuation of different functionings and capabilities has to be an integral part of the exercise. So when I was select, really emphasizing, please justify your choice of dimensions, please justify your choice of weights, it's because for the capability approach, how you select these has to be central. Um, and because it will be context, contested um, and perhaps should be. I already mentioned that they share the same space. Um, and also, I already mentioned, and Sen already signals there, that although we might be interested in capability, because of data constraints, um, we usually have to focus on the achieved functionings. And indeed, as early as 1996, Enrica Chiapero Martinetti um, convened a conference on the measurement of functionings in Italy, already giving up on the measurement of capabilities. And it was that, that which um, led to a lot of the early work on measurement, including Brandolini and D'Alessio's paper. We already went through. Um, but, and this is what we will be coming to now, um, measurement of functionings is clearly only one part of the broader approach um, which Sen articulates, which can be called the capability approach, um, but is certainly uh, his approach to justice. And the two differences, which I highlight here and we'll go into more in human development, are that he adds to the space, the identification of the proper space on which to focus, which is the space of capabilities and functionings, the need for principles, principles of distribution, principles of um, sustainability, um, of efficiency, and processes, decision-making processes, support for agency and democratic um, practices. So just to circle back, um, think of the, the indicators that you used on Saturday when you did the first exercise with your data set. Um, and I'd like you just to identify and see if you are clear which of them you would think would be functionings, which are you, uh, resources, and which are utility. Um, and then two other questions more for discussion is, you know, reflecting on this, there is actually, in my view, a value of measures of resources and of institutions and a value of measures for functionings, and they're different values and it would be good to discuss those. And so if you could put an idea down about what a functionings measure might be used for and what a measure of resources or of institutions might be used for, that would be helpful. And if you have time, 
very briefly, we've tried in our methodology to allow a bit for freedom and diversity. Um, and can you spot how we've done that? So I'll give four minutes um, just to think through your indicators, um, think through the purpose of measures, and really try to get clear on this notion of space, which for some people will be very easy and for some people usually is a bit difficult. Now, again, this is a difficult question and we don't have a lot of time, but there are different reasons for having different measures. And I was, I was speaking about the MPI and acknowledging that our indicators there were, were very crude and they mix resources and at least very simple functionings indicators um, with the inaccuracies that I, that I mentioned before. Um, and clearly it would be desirable to have indicators that perhaps didn't mix, that were only functionings or only resource or only institutional delivery. We talked the first day about quality of education using the schools as the unit of analysis and the kinds of variables we would look at to basically focus on institutional delivery and that space, which is a resource space of a particular kind. We've talked today about measures of functionings, which try to look at poverty in terms of the lives people can lead, and then all the data constraints and challenges to do that. Um, what might be other examples of where you would want to focus on resources and not on functionings? because there are certainly a number. Yep. Exactly. So if you're doing a monitoring indicator of infrastructure or of public services, then in a sense what you want to know is are you delivering what you've promised? You're going to presume that that will affect the outcomes. And clearly for a full analysis, you would also want a set of outcome indicators. But if you, if you have those outcome indicators and you don't know as the state if you're delivering those services, then part of your own monitoring system is broken. Yeah. I think also for the state, it's kind of irrelevant if people achieve actually their capabilities, no? I, mean, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Okay, but what assumptions are you making in that statement? You can deliver your services and you don't care about outcomes. So you're delivering access to water, but you will never know that all of the left-handed people can't access the water because the right-handed people gang up on them, right? You'll never know that unless you look at the individual level at their, their functionings. And so you, looking also at the outcomes at the functioning space, you can detect both issues of discrimination, issues of quality, people who, I'm in a wheelchair, there's no way I can get to the public tap. So the problems of converting resources into capabilities that we talked about, um, or even of accessing the resources. So if you, if you stop at resources, that was Sen's problem with the basic needs approach and with the income-based approaches is that then they don't look at a lot of the very relevant issues um, in terms of reaching the vulnerable and marginalized populations. Yep. If you are able to measure functions, resources, and utilities, would you still collapse them to, to a multiple dimension indicator? Or are you going to have three indicators, one of a person's ability to function, or 
It's clearly easiest and most um, clear to do the last. So to have a distinct indicators of functionings and of utility and of resources and not to mix them. Um, because then you really can see the divergences. You can see what sectors they have access to services, but the outcomes don't seem to match. So where there are issues and where, where there are synergies. So they answer different questions. Um, at the same time as we had to do, and many of you have to do, because of data limitations, you're mixing them. And that's not ideal. And so sensitizing yourself to that and, and your readers to that, to the assumptions that you're making, however you're going to interpret them, I think is, is useful in the, in the situations where we have to mix. We almost always have to mix in resources in at least one dimension. But that, for example, is a is a reason why we might not want to mix income in a multidimensional poverty measure, which looks at educational achievement, um, health achievements. We might want to keep them separate. Okay. Um, anyone want to give a quick answer to how our method allows for diversity? Just trying to review. Mm-hmm. And how many do you have to be deprived in to count as poor? Uh, right. So it could be the fact if K is not the lowest weighted dimension, so if you're not taking the union approach, then you could have a deprivation because you like it. Um, I was in Nepal and somebody working in the central bank was, I don't know if I mentioned this, but um, preaching the value of open sanitation which to most of us would be a deprivation. But he was saying, beautiful view, lots of diversity. You know, um, so there, there are certain, certain things that are attractive in that option. And so for him, it would be a restriction on freedom to require the use of a protected latrine. Um, and so in order to respect people's freedom, you can have a K value, which is not the union approach. OK. Um, so very briefly, what I wanted to do to close was just signal a few of the, again, more conceptual linkages um, with other words and paradigms. Um, and the first is human development, which, as I mentioned, um, came out very directly from Sen's approach. In my understanding, human development and capability approach are based on the same um, conceptual framework, which is the capability approach. And the human development reports look to how that can be applied prospectively, how it can be advanced through policy and in concrete actions, but that the objective is the same. And the initial human development reports simplified Sen's phrase that the objective of human development, of development is to expand people's capabilities into a simpler phrase of expanding people's choices. But later human development reports returned to the language of capabilities itself um, and, and recaptured it. Um, I'm going to skip this, but this was the 1990 um, definition where human development is a process of enlarging people's choices. They mentioned three dimensions that are constituent of the HDI, health, education, and living standard, 
but also mentioned the importance of other dimensions that then could not be measured, such as political freedom, human rights, and self-respect. They mentioned the need for processes um, of creating capabilities, as well as assessments of outcome, which we've been talking about. And then they linked to other frameworks. So it was sort of the basic needs approach, but brought in participation or agency. Um, and then specified that this approach, because of its incompleteness, um, was relevant for both developing countries and developed countries. Um, and 20 years later, um, this is the definition which was published in the Human Development Report uh, last year. Um, and you can see very clearly the links to the capability approach. It's the expansion of people's freedoms. So that is uh, the language of capability, to live long and healthy and creative lives, to advance other goals they have reason to value, and to engage actively, which is your agency bit, in shaping development equity and sustainability on a, sustainably on a shared planet, which is your principles. And this phrase was used in 1991 and reintroduced on a number of occasions, including in 2010, that people are both the beneficiaries and the drivers or agents of human development as individuals and in groups was added last year just to clarify that the approach is not methodologically individualistic. So the conceptual framework has, of human development has the expansion of capabilities as its center in this diagram called opportunity freedoms. And it also has process freedoms, people's individual and collective agency as part and constitutive of human development. And also principles of justice, which include distribution, efficiency, sustainability, respect for human rights and responsibility among others. The shared planet simply um, acknowledges the constraints um, we work on. Um, now, what are the relationships to the other frameworks? And I'll probably just use this slide, but the other slides will be there if you want to look in more detail. Um, first of all, all of the other concepts, human rights, human security, happiness, and the MDGs, are very directly related to the project of human development, which is, in a sense, putting the human being at the center of, of policy attention. Um, as you know, the human development approach from the very beginning argued that, at least in the 1980s, which it um, directly succeeded, the objective had been economic growth and human beings had been appreciated insofar as they were productive means for achieving high economic growth. But that somehow got the means and the ends the wrong way around. And the emphasis of human development was to say that people and their flourishing in different dimensions of their lives and across all people was the objective of economic development and economic growth was one means for achieving this alongside others. And so the quotation from the 1990 Human Development Report from Aristotle, wealth is um, not what we're seeking, it's only a means to something else. So it's not the final objective. And similarly, human rights, human security, happiness, and the MDGs share this similar project of somehow putting human flourishing and fulfillment as the final objective of activities of policy or poverty reduction. 
the easiest way to think of human security and human rights is that they, in a sense, address a different audience. I just gave you the human development approach, and I framed it with respect to economics, that the objective of economics had been economic growth, and in many places still is, and not human flourishing, the expansion of people's capabilities. But that similar argument is made for human security and human rights, but facing into a military audience or a legal audience instead of an economic audience. Um, and there are three characteristics which all human development, human security, and human rights share. The first is that their unit of analysis is the person. So whereas an economic development that only focuses on gross growth, the growth of the economy, um, rather than even the growth of per capita income at the individual level, not average per capita income, um, looks at the economy as the unit of analysis. Um, and human development looks at, as, as I said, each person's capabilities, the individual human, and then all of us as a society and as the unit of analysis. Human security also makes the similar move. So since the Westphalian Agreement, the unit of analysis for security, national security studies, had been the nation state. And protecting the nation state from territorial aggression had been the focus of security studies and strategic studies. Um, so the unit of analysis was your territory. And human security shifts that down to the individual and um, says that we need to protect the human life from the human being, from critical and pervasive threats, um, which can be addressed. Um, and similarly, human rights had looked at legal precedent and, or sorry, um, the legal frameworks which should just look at the precedent and human rights are wanting to look um, at, again, individuals' human rights as the unit of analysis. In all three of these, the focal space is capabilities and functionings. Perhaps the breadth of that space differs. Sen, writing in the Commission on Human Security report, Human Security Now, articulates the difference between human development and human security by saying that human development is quite optimistic and we think that things are going to keep going up and up. And human security is trying to prevent regression, um, prevent, you know, um, losing achievements, losing development, and then for the chronically poor and for the chronically um, violated, then yes, it's trying to achieve human security for them. So in a sense, human security may have a narrower space. In the Commission on Human Security, again, they, they characterized the functionings that were of relevance as those that were vi threats to people's vital core. So it wasn't any capability that mattered, my capability to own a Cadillac or to eat caviar, but it was threats to my vital core which were, in a sense, within the appropriate space of human security, much narrower than human development. And human rights, depending if you use a universal version or a specific contextual version, will also perhaps specify a more delimited focal space. And all of them are multidimensional, whereas initially security studies had focused on the use of military force. Even um, much before the move to human security, there was also recognitions of threats from economic and um, political spaces. 
and clearly human security looks at a number of different dimensions, not just uh, the security from violence. So these are different conceptual frameworks, but in a sense, if you stand back, they are doing similar moves in terms of their emphasis. And so there can be some useful um, in interchange between them. And Sen has clearly written on all of them. So he's written on human security. He's written, as I mentioned uh, on Friday, elements of a theory of human rights, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, a number of articles on human rights as well as on capabilities. So uh, sometimes people are confused, and I'm very happy to talk further, but at least hopefully these distinctions can be quite clear. And the Millennium Development Goals, um, the set of eight goals and 49 initial indicators um, that were set or agreed upon in the year 2000, um, are a particular quantitative articulation of some of the core human development goals. They include indicators of resources and indicators of functionings um, and in a sense are taking part of the human development agenda and simply trying to focus on it um, for a particular purpose which has to do with international movement towards a goal. And we could talk about their history, we could talk about how you also need national specifications of the goals alongside the, the international goals because the international goals will not necessarily have a very diminished um, consensus, uh, area of consensus. And the, the final area which it's useful because many of the authors are working from a similar motivation is the work on happiness, um, which by now is quite diverse and includes those working on um, hedonic happiness, those working on senses of evaluative happiness, of satisfaction those working on time use studies, um, and so different methods of gathering data, different actual questions that are fielded, um, and also psychological well-being. But they, they share a, a, a motivation to reorient economic and social policy towards people's well-being, as is seen in Richard Layard's work on happiness as uh, an economist who very much shifted his emphasis when he realized that traditional uh, neoclassical economics did not necessarily advance happiness. Um, there are distinctions, particularly between those who focus only on the psychic um, utility, not what is happening in Bhutan with many dimensions of happiness, but only focusing on psychic utility. It's very much focusing in the space of utility, um, and hence subject, as Carol Graham has shown, has, as Sen and others have articulated and tried to explore empirically, it's subjective to to issues of adaptive preferences. Um, and so um, perhaps um, needs to be complemented by other work. Um, the other issue in the happiness research is where is agency? If I'm a psychologist and I find out when you are happy, you're unhappy commuting, you're happy eating a long lunch if you're French, um, th th these are things that I find out about you. And I then am the expert. And then I can tell you how you can be happy. You should marry. Um, you should be in work. We can sort of break, break apart and look at the correlates of happiness. But that, in a sense, takes agency away from communities because they are no longer experts on how they are fulfilled. And so there's also a slight tension between the happiness work um, and Sen's focus on participatory aspects and community-driven development. Um, so this is very, very brief because it's the end of the day, but it's at least a thumbnail sketch 
for those of you who are interested, or I know some of you are working in, in other paradigms of how the languages might connect, and we can go into that more later.